People of America, people of the world, you are listening to Beyond the Plate with Capi. Who else? I don't do it sometimes to fulfill other people's dreams, but to fulfill my own dreams. And if you do things to fulfill your dreams and you do it with heart and love, eventually happens that you also fulfill other people's dreams. Hey everyone, this is Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode, we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's hospitality industry. For this episode, we sat with the incomparable chef, Jose Andres. I do want to give you a heads up. This is our last Beyond the Plate episode for season one, big season one finale, but we do have next week's episode of Just the Plate with Jose. He's going to do a recipe for us. It sounds quite delicious. But for, for season two updates, we do have some really awesome plans for that. To be very honest, we will tease them out shortly. But follow us on social media for all of our season two updates. You can find me at On Cappy's Plate across Instagram, Twitter, and whatnot. And then for the pod, we're at BT Plate Podcast on Twitter. And we also have a Facebook page. So we'll keep updates on there too. Also a heads up. You can find us on Spotify now, which is super exciting. We are on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and Libsyn, and we have added Spotify. So you can find us on your Spotify app on your phones or computers or tablets. Back to the task at hand. Chef Jose Andres is an incredible human being. And my producers get mad at me when I say that every guest is incredible but they are incredible. I truly believe that. Jose Andres is no stranger to the media these days. You've probably seen him feeding people in Puerto Rico after the devastating hurricanes, but that wasn't his first foray into this. Jose was quick to go to Haiti after the earthquakes in 2010. He was in Puerto Rico where they've served north of 3 million meals to those in need. He was in California during the wildfires feeding people. There's a beautiful piece on 60 Minutes just a month or two ago, which you may want to check out to get a little more in-depth perspective on what he's been up to. This is a chef, a man who's been named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. He was awarded Outstanding Chef by the James Beard Foundation. He's internationally recognized. He's a culinary innovator. He's an author, an educator, which we talk about, a television personality, a humanitarian, and he's the chef owner of Think Food Group. Think Food Group is his restaurant group based in Washington, D.C. They have nearly 30 restaurants plus a food truck. These are located throughout the country, Mexico City. He has a fast casual concept called Beefsteak, which is a vegetable-driven fast casual concept, which we talk about. This man is also the pioneer of Spanish tapas in the United States. And he won't fully take credit for it, but you'll hear some more conversation about that later on in the episode. He's the only chef globally that has both a two-star Michelin restaurant and four bib gourmands. He's an advocate of food and hunger issues. He champions the role of chefs in the national debate on food policy. He started a foundation in 2012 called World Central Kitchen. We talk about how and why and when. This is a nonprofit that provides smart solutions to hunger and poverty by using the power of food to empower communities and strengthen economies. I honestly could go on and on and on, and I'm going to stop right there because you're going to get a great sense. If you don't know Chef Jose Andres, you're going to get a great sense of him throughout this episode. So please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate for the season one finale with Chef Jose Andres. So we are here uh, on the very much where I be close to where I began in Washington D.C. Uh, we are in my in my office even. I don't think this is the office. This is, you can see it has sofas and it's just a place to hang up and rest and, and meet and talk and dream. And, and I can see the, the National Archives from here and I can see the Navy Memorial, which I love because I was a Navy boy in Spain. So, and Jaleo and my restaurants are very much uh, walking distance less than a minute. Just on a personal front, I wanted to let you know I ran into Rich Melman last week in oh, Chicago. Wow. He's a big fan of yours. Well, to walk in the streets 
of Chicago and I'm finding uh, Richard Melman. Uh, you guys, you need to understand. It's like if you are in, in Rome and you're walking, looking for a restaurant, and all of a sudden you, you find the Pope. Imagine you are a Catholic <laughs> Christian, even if you're not. It's like a very big deal. So Richard Melman is giving me great uh, counseling over the years. He's been in the distance, always a very big force of good influence. He showed that you can have multiple restaurants, company, and do everything at a fairly high level. And it's great to see that now his children are following his path. But Richard Melman very much has been, has been one of the, I will say, one of the top top guys in the industry for, for so many years now. We're talking 20, 30 plus years. Yeah, he's amazing. 40 years. Yeah, and I know, I know you and your business partner won or received the Rich Melman Award from Restaurant Hospitality Magazine a little while back. The second connection is we met because I was in Las Vegas for New Year's of 2010 at the Cosmopolitan opening, and I came up to you to reintroduce myself to let you know I work yeah, with Rachel yeah, Ray, yeah, and I work yeah, on her yeah. charity, and you were you were tending the wood-burning paella pit, and it looked like that was like your candy store, like as a kid, like you didn't want to leave that paella pit, but you were so kind to me, and you I believe you had gotten back from Haiti recently in mm-hmm. 2010 you were telling me about some work there so i know you've you've been up to good things over the years i know port you've been spending a heck of a lot of time in puerto rico and california which we'll get into but you know in in reading around i see people have been calling you the face of american disaster relief mm-hmm. and i know you've been a huge supporter with dc central kitchen and haiti from the 2010 earthquakes and puerto rico and california and more and more my question is, when did you have this sense of urgency that you need to help? Well, uh, we are in a business that uh, uh, nobody will doubt we, we, feed the, uh, we feed the few. Even in our uh, more modest price restaurants, we, we feed the few. It's, it's a whole bunch of people in America or around the world that they don't have the opportunity, probably the willing, but, but not the money to come to restaurants uh, like mine. And this is one part. Uh, but another part uh, is deeper than that. The part is that uh, we all seem, especially in cities, that we live uh, together in this kind of open cities that seems everybody is welcome everywhere. But the, the, the reality is that it's not the case. It's we, we are all uh, broken apart in different neighborhoods. And, and you know who lives in each one and... And, and they tell you that you cannot go to this one or they tell you that you cannot go to that one because you are not welcome in very strange ways. Yeah. It's kind of the body language. And I do believe that if I really want to be giving to my daughters a, a better city, in this case Washington, a better world, uh, I'm not going to do it by protecting them or building walls around them. Is what fathers and mothers we want to do, especially my daughters. You you want to protect them to mm-hmm. the end. But I learned that the best protection is break, breaking down the walls and, and and show them the real world. And and in my case, trying to improve a little bit uh, the world they live in. And so if every father and mother do that, uh, probably our children will find a better world tomorrow. So this is more about not thinking about building walls to protection, um, but this is about using those same walls to give people hope with better schools or schools or, 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 or facilities where they can spend the night if they're homeless or, or, or facilities where they can have a plate of food if they are hungry. This is how we can be uh, really giving our children a better tomorrow. So that's, I guess, what I do it. Yeah. So you founded World Central Kitchen in 2012. Was there a moment that made you start World Central Kitchen? Uh, very much the first minute I arrived to Haiti in 2010. Yeah. I don't know, it was two, three weeks, few weeks after the earthquake. In the moment, um, we, we sensed that, uh, that there was not going to be a problem. But when I arrived, I, I realized that uh, after my experiences on DC Central Kitchen and then helping uh, as a chairman found LA Kitchen, following my, my hero, Robert Egger. I mean, we mentioned uh, Richard Melman, uh, an amazing person, a person that always gives. Now we're talking about Robert Egger, another person that always thinks about others more than he thinks about himself. After we opened LA and he successfully done one of, again, the best 
food fighting organizations, hunger fighting organizations in America. I, I, I knew I wanted to do the same, but in this case, not in a, in a city in the States, but then in a country that was uh, in need. And, and we got money from a foundation that they gave me an award that was supposed to be personal money. I think it was $50,000 from the Bilsek Foundation that they were giving them uh, every year to immigrants that had uh, some impact in America. And my wife and I, we were like, what do we do with the money? We buy a car, do we pay down the loan of the house? <laughs> um, we, we said, let's put the money uh, into into Korean World Central Kitchen, that will be a good use of the money. My partner, Robert, uh, Rob Wilder, who was the one very much who brought me into into the into Washington DC with my other friend and partner Robert Twalbert. Anyway, we put fifty grand each. We had hundred thousand in the bank and we said, let's let's dream what we can do with a foundation that is gonna uh, put food at the forefront um, where we want to change the world through the power of food. I've read how you use the line the power of food and the funny thing is this is making me flash back because this podcast called Beyond the Plate, I originally was going to call it the power of food because I focus on, you know, what so, you do to give So the Thin Food Group, where you are, this is the office where we are, our motto is really to change the world through the power of food. Yeah. So this is our company, pro-business company, but very much uh, while the uh, Thin Food Group and World Central Kitchen, they are to two different organizations. World Central Kitchen is a 501c3 and has nothing to do with Info Group. At the end, obviously, I, I am I am the founder of both and one has nothing to do with the other, but then uh, the values of one go with the other. So you have nearly 30 restaurants around the world, quite frankly, now. And you could be in any of your restaurant kitchens right now or these days, but you're out cooking and arranging for those in need. And you've served, I think the number I heard is over 3 million meals now in Puerto Rico. How do you set a menu for something like that out in the field? Or are there any like commonalities you find <laughs> that people take to, or is it they just need food? <laughs> well, I think as today we are in the north of 3.3. That's incredible. We still have a kitchen that is, uh, we have technically three kitchens that they're putting close between uh, six, seven, and 10,000 meals a day. We're probably going to have to increase a little bit more. Probably going to have to make it to 20 at least because it's still a lot of pockets that we are identifying that they are not receiving uh, the help that they should. But um, I don't know. Uh, listen, in the top uh, of the crisis, we had 18 kitchens operating at the same time. And we opened 21 with the new one we opened in Dorado is 22 total kitchens we opened. More on the north of 16,000 volunteers that they've been part of this. But the menu, you know, I, uh, at times I had to raise my voice probably more. Uh, I wanted to be heard. Even everybody was there with the willingness to help. So it was not difficult. To lead, but I use use the the resources of the local community. I, I didn't go there trying to impose. I, mm. I went there. Number one, I, I went there only try to help. But when I saw that we needed to do more than just trying to help, and that we had to take the lead on feeding many, I use use the foods that were available and the talents of the local chef community, which by the way they are amazing. From uh, so so many Santa Ella and and Willow Jose Enrique. Uh, Chef Piñero, I mean, it's so many, Manolo, it's so many that I don't want to keep mentioning. Yeah. Because it will be, it will not be fair to the ones I forgive. But the chefs of Puerto Rico, the best chefs of Puerto Rico, the best chefs of San Juan, when they lost, many of them lost their restaurants and their, home, their homes were underwater. Or their family members, they didn't know where they were. But they didn't even could go to look for them because they didn't have gas and they were far away somewhere in the island. Those chefs came together and began use feeding people. And I was very, very, very lucky that there was kind of the wind behind the cells. And everybody used, began cooking and, and what became 2,000 meals uh, the Monday after the earthquake at Jose Enrique in Santurce, sorry, after the hurricane. It became more than, I think one moment, uh, one day we, we reached close to 170,000 meals in one day. So that was the dream that happened. Nothing else, nothing more. Only the, the chefs and the people of Puerto Rico, food trucks, uh, many of them heroes that they left everything behind 
and they didn't thought about themselves and their hardships, but they only thought about feeding others. That's what it took, nothing else, nothing more. So in 2013, you became an American citizen. Big day. Big day. What does it mean to you to be a U.S. citizen? Well, I think today it means even more uh, than ever. Obviously, uh, you know, I cover up my lack of English by passion, probably, <laughs> and by stories. And, and obviously coming to the States as a Navy boy in the Spanish Navy in a four-mast tall ship, white, beautiful, 300 crew coming into Pensacola, a town that celebrated uh, the festivities of the five flags, which one of them was the Castilian Spanish flag, that left a big mark on me. And, and obviously knowing about the, the initial, with all due respect to, to the, the, the Indians were already here or the Vikings that came first, but knowing uh, the Spanish uh, influence uh, in the initial uh, discovery of America and especially the U.S. that a lot of people are not aware. And then arriving in New York on top of the mast, probably 20-something meter up in the, in the air and, and going under the Burrasano Bridge and seeing Manhattan in the distance and the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island on my left, that, that leaves you a big mark. So when I finished my military service and I came back to the States, I knew that I wanted to be uh, I was young, I was close to 21, going to 22. I knew I wanted to be part of this rim. And, and I learned that you don't have to have uh, a passport or, or born in a place that you belong by working. You belong by, by working for your own, for your loved ones, but you were working to the betterment of the place you live. And that's a big message. I, I, I've been here, you know, the biggest part of my adult life. So... Uh, yes, I became American in 2013, but I can tell you, I think I became American many, many years before. I didn't, yeah. I didn't need a passport to feel I belong here. I know where I come from, and I love Spain, but I know where I belong. And I have three American-born daughters, but you don't need to give somebody a passport to make them feel. We have 11 million undocumented that I cannot speak on behalf of every one of them, but I can tell you that the vast majority of them they, they may come from other countries, but they are every day waking up, working 12, 14 hours a day, and loving this country as much as, as any, anybody. You, you are American because, because you belong, you, 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 you belong because you work hard, and because you love what America stands for. Yeah. And that's what makes you an American. You're from Asturias? Am I pronouncing it right? Yeah, Asturias. I was born. Asturias, Spain. How did that town, city, village, how did that influence your life? Well, I was very young. Um, I have uh, flashbacks of of growing up there. And my mother, who already passed away last year, uh, already, uh, she was always amazed that I could remember certain things. Like, like the hunting dogs of my grandfather, which, again, I was five. And she will be amazed that I will even remember, because she was like, well, you, they, they die right, right after. I mean, after we left Asturias and we moved to Barcelona. So I guess they, they influenced me in ways that uh, I moved to Barcelona when I was five. So again, mm -hmm. I was very young. But I've been always very attached to, Bar to Asturias, as I am very attached to Barcelona and Catalonia. And I think it was like, I came back to Asturias probably 10, 11 years later. So imagine 11 years passed. But it's something very funny. It has to be in the DNA. In the moment I arrived, my family was waiting there in this old, small, little town train station in a December 21st, two, three, three days before Christmas. And, and the family was there waiting in the station. Almost looked like a commercial. And, and those things you smart you, it's almost like you say, okay, I also belong here. In my case, I feel so comfortable in so many places that my biggest regret is obviously the place I am is where I belong in that moment and I try to give my best. But I always have that sense that I want to belong to so many more places. I feel that. Do you remember what your kitchen table was like growing up, whether it was Asturias or Barcelona? Totally. I mean, we moved to three homes right after we came to, to uh, Barcelona. We were renting here, renting there. And finally, my mother and father, middle class nurses working in a nearby restaurant, 
they were they 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 had a restaurant for a little bit, but working in a in a in a hospital. Got it. <laughs> there were nurses working in a in a hospital. Well, even I I have a feeling like some restaurants should have nurses uh, <laughs> to take care of the food coma that some of right. us we go through. <laughs> I think that should be the trend of 2018. But my my table, uh, the kitchen was small. Is when the refrigerators began being slightly bigger. Before they were super small, I remember. Um, and in the kitchen, you know, if you were three people, you know, you had to be very careful with your moves because it was no bigger than that. But all you needed. And I remember the beginning of the month when my father got the paycheck. That is when the big supermarkets, the big markets uh, began opening. The Carrefour's of the world and the Costco's of the world. And... And we will go, but this didn't happen at the beginning. I saw that this happened over the years and years. Uh, uh, and my father will fill up, uh, and my mother the refrigerator and, and the dry goods. And towards the end of the month, the refrigerator that once was super busy and super full, it became super empty. <laughs> and and I almost was like a sad thing to open the refrigerator. You know, everything was semi gone, the butter was gone, everything was gone. But I don't remember any of the cooking of the beginning of the month. Much of the cooking I remember is always the last week where my mom would make this bechamel with the leftover chicken and she would chop it up and maybe one egg that was left and she'll put it up in the bechamel and then she'll make croquetas. And the old bread, my father would make garlic soup with water and some cloves of garlic and a little bit of olive oil and some Spanish pimenton, the paprika. And those are the dishes I really remember. The end of the month dishes more than the beginning. But in the little town we, we moved after my father and mother bought this house, uh, Santa Coloma de Cervello, one hour away from Barcelona. You know, I remember having the little fish place, the little bakery, uh, the little fruit place, and will be a ritual almost every day going to the bread, going to the chicken place if you were eating chicken or beef that day, going for the vegetables maybe for two, three days. But almost the ritual of shopping uh, was almost a daily ritual. And this is probably something I miss enormously uh, when you live in the suburbs here, for example, in this city that it's hard to do that in a neighborhood uh, with all the homes scattered. You have always to to grab the car. And to me, I miss that ritual of, of just living home and walking and, and, and buying and saying hi and the mailman and, and, and buying the milk. Uh, we'll buy the milk almost daily. And I miss that. Uh, I guess we don't have so much time anymore, but I miss that. I want to dream that one day I'm going to be living in a neighborhood that everything will be walking distance yeah. and, and you will go one place at a time and where everybody is the expert. It's, it's my favorite part about going to Europe, parts of Spain or, or Paris. I always tell anyone traveling there, go buy a, a loaf of bread, go buy then some cheeses, then some meats, then some, and it's, it's so nice. What was your first restaurant job? Was it, it was in Spain? I mean, my first restaurant job really was uh, in a, that's a great question, but my first first, and by that mean that I got paid, so I had to be uh, 15th going to 16th, and was in the convention center of Barcelona near um, the Plaza de España, uh, a big square that from there some of the bigger avenues use uh, uh, very much uh, uh, break Barcelona in, 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 in three, four big areas. And there the convention center, which by the way is beautiful, uh, was a little restaurant inside uh, to cater to, to, the, to the convention goers. Um, was called L'Univers. Uh, in Catalan means the universe. And was a typical restaurant that will be, you know, uh, depends the convention with people with more or less money. 
it will have you know three four uh, first courses three four main courses and three or four desserts you'll pay a price and you choose and so we'll have to be doing you know hundreds if not thousands of meals in very short time and they hired me and i remember they used to pay me five thousand pesetas for a days of work that roughly will be around eight nine hours we'll be we began the day very early and and 5,000 pesetas will be like what? What is 5,000 pesetas now? Like $20, $30 maybe. Uh, but we're talking, you know, 30-something years ago. Not bad for a 15-year-old kid. Were you cooking? Oh, yeah. Uh, we will make... Uh, Did you love it? Did you know salmon you Salmon. We will cure salmon with uh, sugar and, and juniper berries and salt. And, but we'll do like, you know, 100 halves of salmon. Yeah which I never understood why they didn't bought the smoked salmon already, but this one was cured. But I guess I understand now. But cheaper to make it and to buy it. And Did you know you loved cooking then? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Big way. Big Were you way. cooking at home? I, 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 I cook at home since I was young, young. I still remember when, before we moved outside Barcelona, we used to live near a beautiful hospital called the Hospital of San Pau which is a hospital anybody going to Barcelona should, should go because their architecture is unbelievable. And we live there in a street called Padre Maria Claret and was, you know, an apartment building. I remember that the first thing I made was one of those cakes that you buy the box and everything is there, which, by the way, they, they are not the same anymore in the old days. It's true that in the old days, some of those things were better. And, and these, I'm sorry, but this is a message to the food industry. Those things in the old days, they used to be better. So technology has helped make more money and sell it cheaper, which is amazing that they can make more money and sell it cheaper, which is always good to sell cheaper, but it's not better. And it's not so cheap anymore anyway. And I made uh, um, one of those cakes. I think that one was the, 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 the like a lemon sponge cake that, had the the powders to make the cream and bake the genoise and what they call the bizcocho, and I used to I used to make that one. I remember it was easy. You read the ingredients and it was so so. This is a great way for making anybody to start cooking because it makes you very successful very quickly. But anyway, uh, I always cook. My father always cook. Uh, my mother always cook. Remember that cooking back then in Spain and many other countries around the world is a pleasure, but it's really a necessity. You don't have the money to go out or, or you don't have enough money to go out every day and more if you are a family of five. The salary doesn't give for more and it's, fa it's fine. But, you know, it's the moment that you see that a pound of chickpeas and ham hog, a little, a little piece of bone or half a chicken or quarter chicken, uh, and some lentils, they go a long way. Yeah. So then you're 18, 19, you, you apprentice under uh, Ferran Adria at El Bui, one of the best chefs in the world and one of the best restaurants of our time. Could you give me three words to describe Ferran? Three words? No. Uh, well, one would be a genius because he's, he's a genius. The other one will be uh, unselfish. He shared everything he knew. The world today, the culinary world today, every single chef in the, in, in the world, even the ones don't recognize it, <laughs> they wouldn't be cooking today uh, if Ferran was not there. Even the ones that say they've never been influenced by him, uh, they've been influenced by him. It's unbelievable. The techniques he opened and the, the thinking about Creativity beyond cooking. Genius is one, and selfish is the other, and and persistent. Uh, he's he never stops. He goes and goes and goes. He he he's one of the big thinkers of our time. He probably Ferran was a biology, a medical researcher, uh, probably. Cancer will be wiped out. Or if he was the owner of a big pharmaceutical industry, uh, every single person in poor countries will have access to medicines. 
at an affordable price. That's who Varane is very much. Yeah. Did you ever think you'd be teaching a class with him uh, well, at Harvard? <laughs> well, he's even smart for that. Uh, when we came uh, first to Harvard uh, on the first visit, uh, and the seed kind of was planted to create the classes, you know, very much he's like, well, you're going to have to, you know, uh, you're closer than me to yeah. Harvard. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so at the beginning, you know, we spent a lot of time making them successful, and and, and then in, in a in a very Ferran way, you know, we 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 made it very inclusive uh, to bring uh, every single chef that was out of our movement involved. Many at the beginning from Spain because it's where all this way of thinking came from, really. But then some of the of the great American chefs, you no, know, like so, so, so very amazing. Uh, I just came back a few weeks ago from giving the last lecture in the last class. I usually give the first and the last. I try uh, one or the other or both um, to make sure we we start well or we end well. Um, and it's always good to see the professors there and, and the students especially and, and just to see that food is a mechanism and a way to teach physics it's very interesting it's very fun yeah and so then you wind up being also affiliated teaching with the George Washington University here in DC so my question for you Professor Andres you're a father of three girls what lessons are you teaching them you touched on them earlier a little well, bit. You know, we are we are living uh, interesting times. Having three daughters in in today's DNA, it's very interesting because we we are seeing what has happened in two seventeenth. Um, that all of the sudden has been all these uh, talk about how we are treating uh, women in the workplace and from from Hollywood, even these other industries that seems nothing is happening. But probably there's a lot of issues there. Uh, but the restaurant industry has been obviously at the heart, uh, at the heart of the issue. Obviously, it's one of the bigger industries in America. Over over ten percent of Americans work in, in restaurants. Who so is is big on the economy? Is big on the employment? So we are one of the big industries. And only thinking that I have three three daughters. Uh, the same way I always said that I want to leave a. Up the wall for them, and not building walls, and, and 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 making sure the wall is good enough that they can be safe and happy anywhere. It's the same, obviously, with the work environment. At the end, especially because my work in Haiti, I've seen that women are are slaves of the system. We have uh, the people that feed humanity are not men. Even professional kitchens seems they are run by men. The women that really feed the world are the people that feed the world are are women, and and I say that because I'm I've been doing a lot of work on on clean cook stoves and trying to bring clean cooking so we can liberate those women from from health issues because of smoke and time because they spend enormous quantities of time because charcoal cooking is slower or putting them in harm's way because they send young girls to the forest and things happen to them. Or they don't go to school because they have to be in the forest looking for, for, for wood. And all the bad things that go around cooking with, with, um, with, with charcoal that women are, are or, or we see that women are uh, sex slaves all over the world. And, and, and many of them start very young. So women are, uh, we always say that women are the future. But I, I think we should stop saying that women are the future and begin saying that women are the present. We always talk about the, 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 the weak sex. Oh, well, it's not like women are any weaker than men because the DNA of men makes us taller and maybe stronger because of our muscles. But uh, uh, we should stop, uh, start having that, that thought that, that yes, we men are stronger. But precisely because physically maybe we're stronger, we need to be... Uh, using that precisely for protection, not for taking advantage of. And I think it's going to be the big one in 2018th, obviously. Uh, everything came quick, but this has been going on no, no, not only for for the last 10 or 20 years. This has been humanity for the last 
two, three, four thousand since humanity is humanity. That women somehow they are they've been taken advantage of when at the same time they are the backbone of our society. Uh, women are the backbone of our society, but we cannot be just taking advantage of them in any way or form. And so he's going to, as a father uh, of three, I, uh, I'm very happy all of this is finally coming to light because I hope we are all together going to make a better world for every single woman in America and overseas, especially in the restaurant industry. But uh, I think we're going to have to have uh, more women leading. My my CEO in my company, Kimberly Grant, she's, she's uh, the, the, the best CEO I imagine. It happens she's a woman. Uh, uh, but but this, I'm very proud she is and, and, and that we are led by. But again, um, what I'm trying to teach my, 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 my three daughters is precisely that, that that they need to speak up, that they need to be uh, strong, that they need to be taking the lead when they, they think they should be taking the lead, and to speak up about anything that they feel is wrong. And, and men, we're going to have to be right there use, uh, supporting and also speaking up. Uh, me, I've been going through a lot of thinking. Uh, I have obviously a, a very big company, and, and, and we've been always very serious about making sure that uh, the workplace is a, a safe, good, happy environment where people can fulfill their dreams and become anything they want. And, and if anything, we've been going through even more questions about what, what the else we should be doing. Not only to make sure that nothing happens, but to make sure that we also can become a, a, a voice that, that everybody works with us when they go and they start working somewhere else, so they began their own companies, that they can bring with, with them a good work ethic where everybody, but especially women, are, are treated with the respect they, they deserve. You know, chefs have made headlines recently, as you alluded to, because I, I sat and uh, chatted with Tom Colicchio. I think that the morning I chatted with him, you had put out a tweet saying something along, don't quote me on this, but something along the lines of, the answer is not staying away from these restaurants. Yes, these chefs may have done some things, but there's a staff of people that are trying to earn a living for their family and pay rent and pay bills. And I asked Tom, and you know, we he, he said it's a it's a personal it's personal, you know, whether what you decide to do or not. But what needs to, and I just actually came from a meeting at the National Restaurant Association before here and they love you. They were talking about the Capital Food Fight event with DC Central Kitchen. But what, like, what needs to be done? Well, I mean, listen, uh, myself as a, as a father of three girls, uh, as, a as a husband of one beautiful wife, as the leader of my organization, uh, Thinful Group, with hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, in many cities, all of these very much uh, began in, in the in my time when I was in Puerto Rico and I've been trying to put a lot of thinking and 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 trying to be and trying to be a voice because I've been having these conversations first with my, my daughters. Because, you know, some of the chefs that uh, they've been uh finger point as doing doing something that we can say as wrong. Um, um is people they they, they know um, because different festivals, because there are people, some of them, they've been, they've been friends. And I began seeing myself explain what happened to my daughters. And, and, and the conversation is not long. It's that uh, what happens at the end in, in everyone's of uh, our lives matters. Uh, we are surrounded by people. I always say that we are as good as the people we have around us. And I do believe that's true. And, and that means to speak up. And obviously, um, I, I've been working in, in, my, in my same company 25 years. And I can tell you that in my company, we believe we've done things well. We've been done things uh, uh, making sure that the integrity of every person, and especially women, is it's, it's, it's non-negotiable. 
we have human resources. We have, but but this shouldn't be beyond human resources. It's, it should be a certain human decency that we know what's right and what's wrong. And and you can always maybe do something like somebody takes it in the wrong way, and it's very simple. Uh, no is no, and. And uh, an apology should be done right there, that minute. When we see something wrong, needs to be a uh, red flag should be should be raised, and people should know where they should be going to ask for help if they feel powerless. That's a very obvious one, uh, and again, should not be allowed. Should be non-negotiable. I don't have the answer for you, but I've been putting a lot of thinking on on. On, I know my company, I, I want to believe that we are a great company in that sense and, and that uh, things like this, they are non-negotiable and they are not allowed. And, and, but, but this goes beyond that. What are we doing as humans and especially as men? What are we doing that we are putting so many women in uncomfortable situations? What are we doing as a society? What are we doing when we talk about women in such a disrespectful way? I do believe women are the most important part of our society. They, 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 they don't only keep moving humanity forward and they don't carry uh, life for nine months at a time with the sacrifice that that takes. And that men, we take it for granted, I guess. Even I've been a father of three. I can never understand and feel what it means to carry uh, a life in, in your belly for for nine months, but that's precisely what we need to be a star seeing, seeing, seeing women of, of what they are. And especially when you go to poor countries and poor communities, I see that women, they take all the burden of the families and they don't get sometimes the respect they deserve. Uh, and we need to start everywhere uh, to make sure that we give women the dignity that, that, that they deserve and that we, we protect them against all attacks from 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 people, men that don't 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 see them as what they are. Probably the most important uh, part in our in our society. Yeah, thank you. Switching gears here, you're credited for bringing small plates dining concepts to America. You kind of change the vernacular on things. So, do I have you to thank for every server in America saying they suggest I order two to three plates? Well. It, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna lie to you. If Haleo, when we opened in '93, was in New York or in LA, San Francisco, probably even the whole thing will happen much quicker. I was not the one that brought tapas to America. It's been a Spanish restaurants for many, many years. It's been a Spanish cooking for long time since the the, the first Spanish. Con- conquistadors at foot in, in what is now the United States. But maybe what Haleo was in 1993, even was others like Richard Melman with Gabino Sotelino, had Baba Riva in Chicago. But what Haleo really did was believing that you, you could have a big menu, that the top, that the dishes were going to be small, and that you emphasize that sharing is what we wanted you to do. And that probably no nowhere else in America this was happening. You know, even in Spain, uh, you will go and hear the waiter telling you how you eat tapas. Right. And they will laugh at you in the face. Right. Even if you are a tourist, yeah. they will not explain to you. Because tapas even in Spain are enjoyed in a different way that they are enjoyed here, even has changed. Tapas was used bar and was barefoot, standing up and barely sitting down. But Tapas, a place like Haleo, was very unique. 1993 was not a place like Haleo. It was not a place that, again, emphasized Tapas, small dishes, and sharing. And where a table of four could have 12, 15 dishes at a fairly well price. Uh, uh, so uh, that's what Haleo did, probably. And without realizing just the Tapas craze, I remember like 10 years after Haleo in D.C., something very amazing began happening. Japanese restaurants began having tapas. Some of them, Japanese tapas. Uh, American restaurants began using American tapas. And I could tell you that happened in Washington, D.C. for a reason. Uh, So on that end, I I know it happened. I saw it happening in my backyard. 
but, but then, you know, Washington is a place that many people visit and I saw uh, many other restaurants popping and, and now it's crazy. The, the craziness of Spanish food using Washington is just out of the roof. I never imagined there was going to be so many Spanish restaurants opening. But all across America, obviously, over the last 25 years uh, has exploded. But this, more is needed and, and more ingredients and better quality Spanish food. But I'm very amazed and very happy of what has happened the last 25 years. One of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, Outstanding Chef by James Beard Foundation, President Barack Obama honors you with National Humanities Medal. So here's a story. I was reading through your bio and I saw there was something that said, Andres's work has earned awards and distinctions, but I read it so quick that I read it as Andres's work has earned awards and distractions. <laughs> So my question for you is, are these sometimes distractions for you? Like, or do they bring any sort of pressure? Um, yeah, they do. I'm 48 now. July 13th, I will be 49. So I'm about a year and a half to, from reaching 50. And, and I don't know how much more life I have after that, but you need to start thinking about that, no? It's 20, 30, 40 years. Well, if I... If I change my eating habits, which they are all great, but, but maybe too much, and drinking habits, which maybe is a little bit more than I should, I hope I'll make it to 90. But one thing I, I'm not going to lie to you. What I'm realizing is that time is my biggest asset. And time and the people you want to spend that time with around you. Or you around them if they allow you. Time for me is my biggest ingredient right now. And I got caught into this uh, amazing opportunity to win a lot of different things. And the advice sometimes is just concentrate in one and do one very, very well. I never did anything very, very well. I use, I'm more an instigator of, 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 of beginnings and... Uh, 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 and I do it in part because I have a hard time concentrating for longer than an hour on anything, uh, probably half an hour right now. I, I cannot believe that I say no to interviews and I say no to TV and I say no to TV shows that maybe I had the option even with my heavy accent of being the host or being... But, you know, every time I say no, it's, it's time again. And, and, and I barely have enough time anymore to, to, to win every one of my restaurants at the level I wanted. But again, uh, when I say that I'm only as good as the team I have around me, this is no way I used to cover myself up, but that's true. Really, if I keep doing those restaurants, because always you have people that, can take over them and, and, and younger people than you and do as good or better job that you did when you were running them on your own. Uh, and that's the reality. Is there a moment you realized when you made it as a chef? I mean, you started with Haleo, you were 23. Is there, is there a moment you realized this? No, not really. I, I think probably all my life I was dreaming of Michelin stars and then I got two with my team two years ago with a Michelin came here to DC and but but by then even if I didn't got them it's like do we deserve them uh, and we answered to ourselves that maybe we do because we've done a very good job for uh, 15 16 years without any guy telling us just by our own belief that we are pushing ourselves to 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 give a great experience and so is one moment that Sometimes, quite frankly, not, not to sound in, in, a, in any way, hopefully pretentious, but I don't, I don't do it sometimes to fulfill other people's dreams, but to fulfill my own dreams. And if you do things to fulfill your dreams and you do it with heart and love, eventually happens that you also fulfill other others people's dreams and they become part of you. Well, the people working with you or well, the people dining with you or... And at the end, it's okay to open restaurants because that's your dream. I mean, I always said that it will be easier to be a writer because you write the book, you fix the book, and at the end, the words that you put on the book is the words 
that you think they're very good and are going to be always the same words. Unfortunately, with cooking, it's not the case. Uh, you come up with dishes and you cook the dishes next to your people, but then one day somebody else is cooking it for you. And But but it's, it's more difficult that maybe it's always the same. But but then it's different. Uh, and different doesn't mean worse. Different means different. And uh, what I'm very happy is that we are able to manage so many, many restaurants and I'm part of so many stories. I always say that my restaurants are, are really books and the dishes are the way for me to be telling the story. And and I'm very happy we have so many stories and I'm very happy that the stories can be read in different ways with different people. So you received two Michelin stars with um, Mini Bar here in D.C. And then you go and open or you've opened multiple fast casual restaurants. And I know fast casual restaurants are kind of like a thing these days, but I feel like you didn't just jump on this train just to jump on it. I feel like this has more meaning to you. Can you tell us about beefsteak? Well, I, we, we, we spoke at the beginning that uh, Thin Food Group stands for, for to change the world through the power of food. And, and I had already a food, a food truck that was Pepe, that was our way to say, can we make a great sandwich uh, concept and, and make it happen? And, but then uh, we were thinking about opening more Pepe's. Uh, and before we did that, I was like, you know, if we want really to try to help change the world through the power of food, there's plenty of sandwich restaurants, plenty of pizza places, plenty of burger places. Even there's always going to be room for one more if it's good and and... And the business makes sense, but I thought uh, what what America wants and America needs, and nobody seems is giving it to them, is, is use more vegetables and fruits. And so the challenge was: can we do one restaurant that can have a the hope of becoming uh, a, a, a restaurant fast food uh, concept that we can have many around the states? And 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 that was a challenge. And, and can we make it successful and profitable? And then if, it, if it's not, can we ignite the passion and the interest of other chefs like, like me to do, try to do the same until one of the concepts sticks and we have, uh, will be great news that the next McDonald's is, 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 a, is a restaurant that 99% of the menu is based on vegetables. That will be the best news of, of, of this century. And I think it's going to happen. Uh, it'll be me. And, well, I, I, I hope so. But if it's not me, you know, I'm not greedy. I, I, I hope it'll be other. And I'll say, man, I miss, I miss that point. I miss that opportunity. But it's okay to, 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 to try to do it yourself, but then be happy when somebody else do, do it. So always somebody better or smarter out there and, 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 and the next Burger King and McDonald's is around the corner. Let's hope is, is one that can feed one day the masses, taking care of everybody, taking care of the employees the best they can, taking care of the environment the best they can, making sure there's more vegetables and vegetable protein. And let's hope this, we will see it in the next five or 10 years. Yeah, I hope. Um, let's fly through a quick speed round here. A few, about eight questions, seven and a bonus question. What'd you have for dinner last night? Well, last night is unfair because <laughs> I was cleaning the refrigerator from, from Christmas, New Year's, oh. which this year we stay in DC because after so much traveling around California for the fires and Puerto Rico after the, the hurricane, I spent you know, over a hundred something days away from home. So we didn't want to go back to Spain like we go every year or anywhere around the States like we do every year. We stay in Washington in Bethesda. So I invited my good friend Seth Hurwitz, who is the founder and owner of 930 Club, who he now has the anthem that probably is, without a doubt, the best music venue anywhere in the world, period, period. And, and his wife Caroline, and he loves to eat uh, he's a guy that, besides owning the anthem, the best music venue in the world is a guy that plays with the Foo Fighters drums and plays with uh, uh, um, with with Theory Corporation and, and, and uh, 
Good music. OAR. Wow. I mean, it's amazing, this guy. It's good to be the club owner. They let you do those things. <laughs> but he loves to eat. And I think I did for him and my wife and Caroline, his wife, a 12th, 14th course menu. I was in the kitchen and I just was cleaning. Food, so, yeah. you know, we had this Iberico roasted pork, uh, ramen style. And, and I had these little asparagus with a little bit of leftover caviar and... We had a lot of things, so I did like a 12-14 course, omansake, omakase, sorry, uh, Japanese, but the Spanish kind of menu. So it was kind of interesting. What's your chill, your daughter's uh, favorite dish you make? Well, lately, I, I don't know if is my daughters uh, are, are in the teenage area. Uh, I don't know if my daughters are in the teenage uh, age or what. Uh, Everyone is always in a different phase. Yeah. Uh, even there, you know, thirteenth, sixteenth, eighteenth. Uh and it's funny because everyone goes through a different phase, but my my eighteenth Carlota just loves everything. Uh gosh, more, I remember more. her I, I remember going to Aspen ten years ago seeing her on stage. Yeah, cooking with me. Wow. She's Impromptu and organized. I love it. Then, you know, um, I think more than the dishes I make for them is the dishes my wife makes for them. Oh, really? What does she cook for them? Well, you know, I think the gazpacho of my wife is probably the most repeated recipe ever. She, she's she been printed in New York Times in every single magazine you imagine. Always my wife's gazpacho, no mine. She makes this chickpeas and spinach, which is a recipe from her mother that came from her grandmother. Uh, and my daughters love that chickpeas and spinach kind of Moorish yeah. influence in South Spain dish. They love that. They love the lentils my wife makes. Wow. We're not doing well on if, this. If you round. are asking between what my daughters will choose, my wife cooking or my cooking, I don't know. I, I'm afraid <laughs> to ask the question. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Uh, she's more reliable. I am more... As my um, Lucia, my youngest, will say, Daddy, it's you always have to try something new. <laughs> that sounds like my wife. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's your favorite ingredient to cook with? Oh, my God, so many. But let me tell you, a squid, I think, is the most underrated product in the world. But specifically, a problem, we hope, will become an opportunity, uh, uh, the, the the shores of America produce, they have good squid. In North Spain, you have fishermen that they go and they catch one by one. And they usually use uh, older fishermen or older men that retire and they give them the permit and they can catch them one by one. And when they're fresh, I wish that Jeff Bezos and Amazon will put the service of their infrastructure to make sure we are able to bring those squid as they're caught from the source uh, where there are fish to the restaurants or homes of the people that want them. Squid, they, they have a hard uh, life in the sense that once you catch them, they don't have a love uh, along when they're fresh, uh, chef squid, life. No. So they need to get there. And when you get the squid and, and you cut one by one, not by net, uh, with this special hook that kind of don't allow them to 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 expose the the to throw the the ink and you get the full ink sack and you use the ink sack to make a sauce. You asked me what I was eating yesterday. One of the dishes was a squid in ink sauce that we ate for uh, New Year's Eve, and and I'm not gonna lie to you, a, a great squid is so many things you can do with it. Um, but I love the simplicity of a freshly caught squid. Just simply sear with a touch of olive oil, maybe a touch of garlic and parsley, maybe. And no cleaning, no touching, and just eating the insides and that they become their own sauce. Uh, I, I, will, I will tell you, a squid is going to be my, my, my ingredient of the year. All right. Um, name a smell in the kitchen you love. Uh, a smell in the kitchen I love will be the smell of my mom's stew of roasted red peppers with garlic and vinegar. Uh, it's probably the dish she made the most in a little terracotta casserole. 
And this is a smell that I, I will even smell coming down from my school with this beautiful mountain in the back. And somehow in the way the kitchen was directed and the winds, I could smell that probably <laughs> 20, 30 meters away. Wow. How about a smell in the kitchen you hate? Oh, I, I, I hate the smell of, 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 of being greedy in the kitchen. Hmm. Uh, greedy is a smell. You can sense. I don't know if it's a smell that is a music. I don't know if it's John, John Steinbeck on the Pearl that he will speak about the music of the moments of life. So interesting you say this. This morning we, we launched uh, our podcast episode with Massimo Batura. And I asked him a smell in the kitchen he loves, and he said that I think he said like the smell of music is what he he loved. That's very interesting. Well, uh, uh, greedy in the kitchen means that you're not generous, right? With 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 the love you put in, or the quality you put in, or or the time, uh, and that's many ways you can be. But I don't like that smell, and you can smell it. When, 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 when we have that saying that that smells or that's fishy, yeah, it's really a smell. What pisses you off in a kitchen? Yeah, I mean, you know what? Maybe pisses me off that this is probably one of my um, biggest regrets as a person, as a man, is is that I, the people work with or, or, or work with me, especially the ones that've been long time. I I want them to be the best they can. I don't know. I always think like one day I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to be around anymore. And and I want everybody to be the best they can. And, and when I see that they maybe they don't, they don't do the best they can. Uh, got it. it. Makes me, makes me upset. What uh, makes you happy? Uh, watching a kitchen just in full motion. Yeah. Working like... And under pressure, I'm, I'm working like nothing happens. We we put a computer many years ago in the kitchen and was to try to create the most peaceful environment we could in what always was a chaos environment. Used to have a chef calling tickets. was never the right way to manage a kitchen that hmm. is busy. All of a sudden you put computers and computers give you this kind of perfect... Uh, like orchestrated. Perfect wall that yeah. is more organized. And organization always creates more peaceful environments. Interesting. So my last question is, where am I going for lunch right after this, before my next meeting? Uh, we should go, um, you know, China Chilcano is my latest uh, I was, I was work. hoping you'd say that. <laughs> uh, we have uh, is this amazing Peruvian restaurant that very much probably happened after a drunk uh, a night of Pisco Sours with, with Gaston Acurio in Peru and my team. And, and we were opening a Chinese restaurant, but obviously... With all the Asian, Chinese, Chifa, and Japanese Nikkei that happens in Peru, we were like, you know one thing? I've been, um, in the spirit, I'm Hispanic, I'm Latino, and and, and I wanted to open this Japanese, uh, Spanish restaurant at the, at the at the old post office, where is now the Trump Tower, that for different reasons didn't happen. And I was like, you know what? Let's, let's open a, let's stop the construction right now, and let's open a, a a Peruvian, which brings the best of one of the great cookings of the world that happens is, is, is from a Hispanic Latino country and that has this amazing mix with, with this, this mix of, 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 of Chinese and Japanese. So Sounds delicious. I love that one. Yeah. All right, this is my last question. Um, so we've touched on a lot today. We touched on the industry, growing up in Spain. We talked about your daughters and food you cooked, food you love. With all that said, you posted a video on Twitter a couple of days ago that I saw. Uh, you said it made you cry. It was a gentleman doing good good deeds for people, holding the door, oh, yeah. giving them money. And at the end, the video said, and in your life, what is it that you desire most? So my question for you is, what do you desire most? Well, desire um, desire is a double-edged word. Me, I use I use wish that if I could choose, I will. You know, with my wife when we'll be eighty, with a little probably a restaurant with probably a table of six seats attached to the kitchen, where. We will go to the market or we will get the fisherman calling us with what he caught right off the coast. 
the restaurant overlooking a beautiful sunset every day. And, and just being opening, uh, being open for anybody will, will dare to, to show up in that place that will be in the middle of nowhere. I think the restaurant I'm going to call it will be uh, Didi Wadidi, if nobody opens before. The Didi Wadidi comes from the WPA uh, writings, the, the World Project that became World Progress Administration, or World Progress that became World Project, that people don't know, but he changed names. And Didi Wadidi was an essay, I forgot the, the writer, man, how can I forget? Uh, that was about this amazing place that the, the Afro-American slaves were dreaming of going, where food will be plentiful, where the chickens will be big, and the, and the sweet potato pie will be never-ending. And that was this man called the Moon Regulator, who was very big, and he will call the Moon Regulator because the days you didn't see the moon is because he didn't. He then turn it on, I guess, and then fix it. And and I would love to have the place, Didi Wadidi, cooking with my wife, hopefully with my children showing up once in a while, and and friends, and just watching the the, the sunset or probably the sunrise of my life. Awesome. Thank cooking. you, Chef. Yeah. I appreciate it. Quote, I don't do it sometimes to fulfill other people's dreams, but to fulfill my own dreams. And if you do things to fulfill your dreams and you do it with the heart and love, eventually happens that you also fulfill other people's dreams. Thanks again to Chef Jose Andres. Find more on him at thinkfoodgroup.com or worldcentralkitchen.org. Join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate. This is a short segment where chefs describe a recipe, sharing insider tips on what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. Jose shares a recipe. It's a paella dish. It's paella valenciana, paella valencia style. This is a true off-the-cuff recipe. We sat down on his couch in his office. No book, no recipe, no sheet, and I cannot wait to make it. For season two updates and happenings, please be sure to find me and keep up to date with the podcast across all social media platforms. I am at On Cappy's Plate, or you could go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate Social on Twitter is BT Plate Podcast. We are also on Facebook. We have our own page. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yeaton, and Sean Petrosian. Big thank yous all around. Our music has been composed by Goldford. You could find him at iGoldford. And a big special shout out to my wife, Katie, for her endless support. Please rate and or review and or subscribe to the podcast on your listening site of choice. We're on Libsyn. We're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play. And we are now on Spotify. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.